Hey everybody, it's Todd Garner. I'm a former studio executive turned producer, and I'm here with my good friend, Billy Ray. I write and produce and direct uh, for movies and television. Also, you have an Academy Award nomination, which is pretty cool. Thank uh, you. So we're going to be doing a podcast called Deadline Strike Talk with Billy Ray and Todd Garner. We're going to have it go through the duration of the strike. And our goal is to really just have calm, intelligent conversations about everything that's happening in the strike and looking under the hood about how it affects not just writers, but the entire Hollywood community. I would say even more broadly than that, uh, what this represents in terms of America and the global economy. Because I, I think what's happening in this strike actually is the front lines in, in a much larger struggle. And that's why you have an Academy Award nomination. <laughs> and I don't. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us and enjoy. Off we go. I'm loving seeing you, bud, but this is a shitty circumstance to, uh, it is. to be here and I'm going to do this as long as this thing goes on. Um, our plan is to have uh, writers, directors, producers, everybody affected by this, because it's not just about the writers. Of course. And really to talk about, you know, personal stories, what people are going through. And, and most importantly, for me, I want to be, if I say something stupid or wrong, correct me, because I, it's weird. That assumes I, that I'm not going to say things that are stupid. Well, but I mean, look, I, I, I'm, I'm not a writer. I'm not in the WGA. You're, you've been more intimately involved in this. And what I find fascinating is, I, you know, especially because I was preparing for this, reading about the strike is confusing, even for, even for me. And I'm in the business. And so, like, things I assumed weren't necessarily right. So well, I may I may have assumptions and I may say some stuff. Please correct me. And I'm hoping that I can be like a layman's, you know, point of view on this whole thing. Obviously I'm a producer. So I have a point of view on how it, you know, all of the business changes sure. affected me personally. But I also want to be a sounding board to be like, ask the questions that maybe somebody on the street might say, well, well they're asking for this. And you're like, no, that's not well, true. Well remember anything <clears throat> that you read about this in the public space, um, you are we are striking against companies that control 95% of the media consumed by the world. And that's where you're reading about it. Right. So to hope that you're going to be getting an unbiased view in any of those media reports, um, it's just not human nature. Right. So how, how, how did we get here? Okay. Um, well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, how much time you got? Oh, well, we have an hour today and then we'll, um, we'll keep going as long as it takes until this thing's over. Look, I've, I've been in this thing uh, up to my eyeballs for a while now. I, I, um, you know, I've been in the guild. I really don't want to say since when because it will date me. But, um, but I, I've been in guild leadership or was in guild leadership for eight years uh, until I turned out on the board. And I co-chaired the negotiating committee three times during those eight years mm -hmm. in, uh, in 11, in 14, and in 17. So I've been in that room and I understand the dynamics of that room. And I want to talk a lot about what happens in that room because I think people really don't know. I certainly didn't until right. I was in there. But I also, forgetting the personal for just a second, this strike to me – is actually part of a much larger struggle. Mm -hmm. um, it's one that impacts all Americans because it's about how corporations view individuals and whether or not people actually matter. Um, I, I do a lot of work in the political space and I, I saw a poll recently. 65% of Americans believe that they don't matter. Wow. Okay. That's not good. No. 4% <laughs> um, of Americans, just four, believe that if they make enough noise, they can make their government pay attention to them as a citizen. Wow. That means 96% of Americans don't believe that. Right. Okay. Why do so many people feel so insignificant? Um, I think this strike is in many ways 
about that. Truck drivers are afraid of driverless trucks, right? You, we, at one point, got used to the idea that you can go to a gas station and fill up your tank without seeing another human being. Right. Now that's the experience at a grocery store as well. As much as that creates convenience, it creates unease for people because mm -hmm. they begin to see jobs going away, replaced by some sort of computerized element, okay? Um, as a writer, I believed that was an impossibility right? Uh, in terms of affecting my livelihood. Turns out it's not. And that is kind of at the core of what we're talking about. And if you think of it in that way, remember that at their peak, uh, unions in America represented over 40% of the Americans who worked. Mm -hmm. Unions now represent less than 7% of Americans who work. Now, look, that's the nature of corporations. Corporations are voracious. That's what they do. They, they acquire, they try to squash costs and build profits. That's that's how America got built in a lot right. of ways. And that's what's rewarded on Wall Street. Wall Street hugely is, rewarded is on the, Wall Street. And the margins and the the amount and the and that's the, right. And the and the amount of times you make profit. You can't just make profit once and you're done for the year. It has right. to be every quarter. That's right. And I can promise you that um that if you are running Netflix or or Apple uh, or the, the media side of Apple or Amazon or any of these other corporations, um Discovery, et cetera, you are not sitting down and reading reviews of your shows. Right. What you're looking at is your quarterly earnings yeah. and how that's affecting your stock price. And you're beholden to a board. And here, and here's what's slightly different than truck drivers and, and gas station attendants, perhaps, is or may, maybe not, but but writers and and producers and directors and actors, we're passionate about we're artists at, at at, at our core, we're passionate about what we do. We want to see shit get made. We want to perform. We want to write. We want to create stories. We want to, and so we're we're disadvantaged because the board of these big major media corporations don't have that. They have a passion for delivering on the bottom line and profit to their shareholders, but they're not passionate about getting that movie made. So we're, we're you know we're always like. Okay, I'll take a little less so I get it made. I just have to get it made. It's right. a, it, and if I get it made, we're we're all gamblers at heart. Then then I'll make the big score. That's you know that was when it was a purely theatrical business. We would always take a little less because we were betting on ourselves that you and you sometimes not often but sometimes got a little more vague on the back end and you bet on yourself whether or not that paid off. For some it paid off huge. For some it never did. But with streaming and everything now, there isn't even that. No. So we're just being, we're all being squished down because we're, we're passionate about our art and we want to see shit get made. And the top of the top, the sh you know, even the CEOs are holding to their board. The board is like, what's the bottom line? That's right. And so the, the advantage is definitely in their court because they're much less passionate about it. Okay. But this is where, and this is going to sound a little arrogant. So forgive me. Um, I do have that club in my bag. Um, is this my first mistake you're going to correct me? No. Oh, okay. Good. No. I was like, wow, that no, was fast. I'm, I'm going I'm to say something that's, that's going to sound grandiose. And it may be a quote that comes back to haunt me. But we are trying to save the business from the people who own it. Right. That's what we're doing. Because essentially what the strike is about is will writing be a viable profession five years from now, right. 10 years from now. Because right now, if we took the deal that was offered to us, it would not be, right. okay? There just, there won't be a writer's guild. There won't be people who can make a living as a writer anymore. And therefore, who's gonna write the TV shows 
and the movies that drive those profits, that make Netflix what it is, that make Amazon what it is, make Apple what it is. If no one is around to write them because you've made writing a job that requires you to have a second job, like real estate or driving an Uber or anything else, um, where are the great shows going to come from? Right. Where's the great content going to come from? And I don't think, I don't see a lot of 20-year planning out there from the people who are running these giant corporations. If they were really looking down the road, they would know you have to sustain your workforce. You have to make it possible for them to work and live in Los Angeles. Um, and right now, too many writers cannot. Um, you know, when the last time that I was um, co-chair of the negotiating committee, which was 2017, we were up in arms that 33% of TV writers were working at scale, essentially at minimums. Okay. That number is now 50%. We're going in the wrong direction. If we keep going in this direction, um, you literally won't be able to sustain a living as a writer. Is your, is your guild membership growing? You know, I don't know the numbers on that. Um, I will, we're going to have a few weeks it, to do this. So yeah, I will sure, find sure. out. No, and this is, again, this is a conversation. It's not an interview. My, 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 my question is, and I, and, and I've been wondering this for a long time, because I, I look at you, if you look at a brand like Guess, right. Uh -huh. Or, or Moss, Massimo's brand, they were luxury brands at one point. <clears throat> and the reason why they were luxury brands is that there was a finite amount of, or Rolex, there's a finite amount of things you could buy. It was a small number at a high price point. I think and this is just a theory. My theory is in the you know 90s, for example, when it was just theatrical and there was no streaming, there were a few companies, we were making a fewer number of projects, pro projects, product, and TV shows. There was three networks. The, the the bar it was it was more of a it's like a luxury brand there was there was fewer with with the prol proliferation of all these streaming companies we're making so much now mm -hmm. or they're making so much now it seems like we've diminished the brand of Hollywood and made it more like what guests became you know like there's so much there's so many brands of guests so many pairs of jeans so many you know swatch watches there's so mm -hmm. many you can buy. Do you think because we're in that, there's so much being made that everything is getting squished down and it's just sort of like the whole business is getting squished down because there, because there's so many people writing these shows now? I mean, I don't mean on each individual show. Mm -hmm. I mean, since they're making so much and there's so much television, so many channels, is it that it's grown so big that they're just making it like, like you, like you guys have said, gig workers? It's just like a fungible thing where they're like, oh, you can be an hourly employee now because it's more like Kmart. Mm -hmm. Do you think that has anything to do with it? I think it? it has a lot to do with it. And I think that's corporatization as right. well. Um, is it a good thing that, I don't know, there are 500 shows out there? I don't know. Um, I, I think for consumers, it's a good thing. Um, the problem with it is it takes the emphasis on quality and makes it an emphasis on quantity. Right. And therefore, it's easier to devalue the people who are writing the show. Right. Um, here's the problem. As I see it, the companies that we're negotiating with, or at the moment not negotiating <laughs> with, um, the companies we're striking against, have collectively profited more than $5 billion in the last five years. Okay? $5 billion, with a B. Screenwriting pay in that same period has dropped by 14%. Okay? Television writing pay in the last 10 years has dropped by 24%. 
If you're dropping by 24%, but the companies that you are writing for are profiting $5 billion, there's a problem. There's an inequity there. And we're, we're going to have, I think, a, a, a number of weeks to, dis, to dissect that. Sure. Um, but what I can tell you for sure is that TV has never been more profitable, ever. And writing in television has never, ever been a more risky um, uh, business for the writers who are actually doing it. And that, by the way, that is true in comedy variety. This is not just an episodic issue. It's true in, in screen. Um, I have a, a personal belief about this. I can't prove it with numbers and I'm not inside the heads of the people who run these corporations. Um, the cost of a TV episode has gone up by 50% in the last, I don't know if it's five years or 10 years. I have that number with me. I'll look it up. But what they're spending on episodes has gone up by 50%, okay? And yet writer pay has dropped in that same period, which means it's not that they're paying writers more that's making the episodes cost more money. It's production, right? Mm -hmm. They can't negotiate lower prices for lumber or aluminum. So they negotiate lower prices where they think they can, which is by squeezing the writer. Right. Well, that's an inequity too. And that is not sustainable. It's not sustainable for the guild. Is everybody getting squeezed or do you feel it's mostly the rise? Like are, are actors making more money in television? I'm not in television as a career, so I'm not as well-versed. Um, I'd have to look at their deal. Okay. I don't know. And they have to go negotiate their deal too. Yeah, so, yeah. Does, so does the DGA. I don't expect either to be terribly helpful. Right. Um, what, what, how, how are television profits going up? Where do you see the television business since 2007? How, where, how is it more profitable now? I have no idea how Netflix, how their business model works. Um, I have no idea how the Apple business model works or Amazon. And I don't want to pretend that I'm an expert. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really not. And even when I was sitting in that room as the co-chair of the negotiating committee, um, I still didn't understand <laughs> how it worked. Um, well, they play can, it very close to the vest. They just uh, give you the subscriber numbers and the and the revenue generated by the subscriptions, and that's it. And then that's they right. give you their operating costs, and it's all lumped into one big number, and then they give you the total profit. That's right. And and you know how does ABC make money, or CBS, or NBC, or Fox? You know that's a little easier to understand. Mm -hmm. It just has to do with what they sell ad time for. Right. Um, you know, the feature business has had a, a rough run. Yeah. And yet I don't see anybody getting out of it. <laughs> well, that's also the issue, right? So we're all screwed because this is what we love to do. And so we all- No, no. What to... I mean is I don't see- Oh, anybody... you companies getting out of it. I don't see companies getting oh, out yeah. of it. Oh, yeah. But I was also going to say just uh, for us for us in the feature world, we've been get. It's an interesting conundrum because there is more being made. So if you know what you're doing, you can make more. But it's much tougher, if not impossible, to get that one that really sets you up. You know, back in the day, you know, look at Peter Guber and Batman, you know, and just mm -hmm. you go back to those flash dance. You go to those huge monster hits that people made their careers on. It's much tougher. I don't know. Would flash dance even be a theatrical today? I don't even know. But it's so it's much harder. So you have to make more to make the same. Yes. But uh, look, I'll, I'll give you an example. Yeah. That uh, is not about episodic. It has to do with um, with comedy variety writers. Mm -hmm. Late night. If you uh, are working on the Jimmy Kimmel show at ABC, you have weekly guarantees. You're on a staff. 
and I don't know what the contracts are. I don't know if it's 26 weeks or if it's a year. I don't know how long those contracts run. But if you did that same show on a streamer, right now the offer is zero weekly guarantee. You're paid a day rate. They literally say, hey, come in, write us some jokes, and we'll call you if we need you tomorrow. How do you live on that? How do you, how do you put your kids through school right. on that? How do you feed your family on that? That is a race to the bottom. That is, that will make writers compete with other writers in a way that is hugely unhealthy for everybody, but it will ultimately, um, it'll make it impossible for those writers to do their job. They can't. And yeah, sure, you'll find someone else to come in and work for a day or two. So I guess you can sustain it over some period of time. Will the product be any good? Um, I don't see how that's possible. And in screen, you have one-step deals doing the same thing. I mean, I've, I've written under one-step deals many, many times. And what that essentially assures is that you have artificially empowered a producer, right? Um, because you you write a first step and the producer says, look, you're only, you only get one delivery. So I'm going to make you do 10 drafts till right. I think it's right. And that may take a year. Right. And in that case, you're never getting your delivery check. How do you feed your family? Yeah, we're on the same side on that one because as a producer who doesn't get paid till probably two or three weeks after someone says action right. <laughs> on a movie set, I feel for the writer and I also feel it's it's sometimes a necessity. And I mean this for myself, not like for the business of like, oh shit, if we don't get this right, for this sure. may not go forward. Let's let's lock arms. I'm not getting paid. Let's let's and it's not fair. It's not fair to anybody, really, to no, have so, to so, have that stress of like if you don't turn in a good draft, the whole thing may go away in one pass. When did that one step thing start? Where do you feel like that made it made a turn from the two step, three step deal to to um it was to now one step right deal. around uh 2010, 2011. Um, there's a thing that the Writers Guild does called the CPSW, um, Committee on the uh, Profession of Screenwriting. I think that's what it is. I was on it <laughs> for years, but I don't remember what it stands right. for. Um, but what we would do is there would be about 10 of us. We'd go in and we'd go studio to studio and we would talk to them about how they treat writers. Um, late pay, those kinds of things. And once we had a meeting with the heads of every studio – and we were talking about one-step deals. This was 2011. And I'll, I'll never forget, Alan Horn um, was one of those people. And I was talking about one-step deals and why I thought they were dangerous and what I thought they would lead to, which turned out to be true. And Alan said to me, yeah, but someone like you doesn't have to work on a one-step deal. And I said, sir, I'm writing on a one-step deal for her. I'm writing on a one-step deal for him. I'm writing on a one-step deal for him. And I'm writing on a one-step deal for you. And he had no idea. Why would he? Why would he? He was you know, way above the pay grade to worry about what one screenwriter was getting paid. My point being that by 2011, it was everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it's only gotten worse. And again, it is another attempt to devalue writing. What I've always believed is that we should not be paying people by the draft. It makes no sense. It made sense back in Alvin Sargent's day when you would pay him commencement, he would go away for six months, come back with a typewritten script that you could shoot. Right. That made sense. Right. Pay him for commencement, pay him for delivery. Okay. But now that we all have computers and we all have the internet, 
you can work on a draft every day and hit send at the end of the day, right? You could turn in 500 drafts if you really wanted to. Right. So why aren't we paying people weekly? If you want to hire me to write a screenplay, hmm. don't hire me to write one draft or a draft and a set or a draft and a set and a polish, which freaks everybody out because no one knows what to call anything. Just say, okay, Billy shows up and we own him for three months and we're going to pay him this amount per week for three months. And that way he's going to wind up with the same dollar number and we'll get as many drafts out of him as we need. And, and it will reward writers who write fast. Right. They'll be able to generate more say, work. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I'm not um, ignorant of the fact that it would be good for someone like me because I work fast. Um, I've been very, very lucky that way. Um, but ultimately, every writer will be getting paid during the time that they're writing. And there won't be this artificial deadline of, oh, this is the draft that goes to the studio. Let every draft go to the studio. Right. right. I guess the first question I would ask is what would happen if they didn't turn into draft in three months? <laughs> like what would happen? Then that writer would never get hired again. Right. And then it's on the writer. Um, but what's the likelihood? Yeah. And, no, and I know. it doesn't have to be three months. It could be six. Right. It could be four. It could be whatever. But so the you, point take, is, you basically take the draft and the set amount and just break it into weekly. Yeah. And then you just do as many drafts as they ask. Who cares? Right. Because you're writing. You're writing. What are you Is that one of the things that's on the table? Because I read something about being paid weekly on your second draft or something. Yeah, I'm sure that's what they're talking about. I'm just saying, uh, when I was on the board, I I screamed about this for eight years. (laughs) Like, blow up the idea of drafts. They make no sense. In In a world where you can hit send at the end of a day and deliver a new draft every day. Right. I don't know any writers who are afraid of working hard. Mm-hmm. I don't know any slacker writers. All of us are busting our ass. So why not have a system that is commensurate with that? I mean, that's just on the screen side. And that is just me talking. That's I'm not saying that's the offer that we've made on the table. What I'm saying is we need to think differently about how writers are paid. And on the screen side, this seems like a really fundamental, logical change. Mm-hmm. It's an outdated system. It doesn't make sense. And it, as I said, it artificially empowers producers to become, you know, um, cutoff men, essentially, or women. Um, and it it creates a system in which if I were a producer, I'd be secretly slipping drafts to the studio all the time to find out what the studio actually wants and get more free work out of the writer. The system incentivizes that. Right. I mean, I guess you could argue that it's sort of the system, <laughs> weirdly, the way the system is set up now, you have a one-step deal that's acting as a weekly, right? Because they're just saying, except, except it just never ends. A, right. <laughs> right. Okay. So what if, right. what if you're working on a script, you've pitched the studio, you turn in a first draft to the producer and the producer says, no, no, I think we should turn left here. And you're saying, no, no, when we pitched it, we said we were going to turn right. Right. And the producer says, I'm not handing it in. I see. Okay. So now your choices that are, as a writer are placate the producer or demand that it get turned in to the studio, knowing that your producer is going to call the studio and say, I don't like it. Well, who wants to do that right. as a writer? As opposed to if you're getting paid for your time, that producer can then say to the studio, hey, this is where we are. Is this the direction you want? And the writer's getting paid, right? A, a, a percentage mm-hmm. of that total time is getting, you know, cut into slivers. So the writer's kids get to stay in school right. and the writer's family gets to keep eating and the writer doesn't have to be selling real estate on the side. 
and we're all solving the problem together. And from a producer's point of view, hugely advantageous because it gets the studio pregnant early. Do you feel like we're on the same side of stuff mostly, writers and producers? I mean, not writer producers, but like guys like me and Lorenzo and Neil Moritz and people like that that are just, I mean, I'm not putting myself at their level, but I'm saying that are producers that are non-writing producers. I think producers are in a really tough spot mm -hmm. on this one um, in a way that studios may not understand because what is a producer's talent? A producer's talent is the ability to get great work out of a lot of people, mm -hmm. including the studio. Right. Right. You need to keep the studio inspired. You need to remind them what the true north is. But if you burn writers, that word gets around and people don't want to work with you. So it's a really tough spot for producers to be in. And this would take that the onus off of that. What this would essentially do, and I don't want to spend all our time talking about screen. No. Um, but what essentially this would do is it would make the studio, the producer, and the writer all teammates. That would be great. <laughs> that would be the idea. Yeah. And, and just so you know, like why this is happening, I think there's a misconception out there that guild leadership in a vacuum just picks a bunch of issues and then says to the membership, this is what the issue of this negotiation is. Mm -hmm. I've done this three times. Um, in this particular case, over the course of the last two years, Writers Guild leadership sent out a survey to their members. They got 7,000 responses. We never came close to that when I was on the board. 7,000 responses to the survey. It's the biggest response they've ever had. And the issues that we're currently striking over are the issues that those 7,000 writers said, I can't live this way anymore. I can't make a living under this system anymore. So this is going to be an impactful negotiation. It's going to change the basic construct of, of how writers are paid. Um, and by the way, we're talking about numbers that are such a fraction of the bottom line, such a tiny fraction of the bottom line of these companies. Um, you know, forgetting Apple, the size of the corporation Apple or the size of the corporation Amazon, but just the media divisions within those, it's a rounding error, what we're talking about. It's, it's a meaningless number. So I have two questions for you. The first, the first one is, um, Going back to kind of what Alan Horn said, like, what, why do you do this? Like, th this is why I wanted to have do this with you is you walk the walk, bud. I mean, you really do. Mm -hmm. You, you, you know, you are very, very successful, but not only have you been so active in the WGA and so active politically and so active for the, the people that are coming up in this business, but even in your writing with Captain Phillips and, and January 6th uh, series that you mm -hmm. have with Adam McKay and, the Comey project, even the stuff you choose is like tough and you, and you care. Like what is, what, what is it about guys like you that in this situation that you, this doesn't necessarily impact you that much that you feel so passionately about writing a move, writing a show like January 6th and getting in the trenches here. Cause you did say that in an interview, you said, I went to Washington because I wanted to be in the trenches and write about the people that were in trenches. And you're in the trenches in the WGA. What is that about you, Billy, that, that causes you to do that? And, and by the way, what's happening with that show? <laughs> um, look, before you uh, assign too much nobility to me or, or to what I do, um, terror is a great motivator. Oh, I live it every day. <laughs> right? um, There's nobody more motivated than a middle-aged independent producer. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. Um, if... if uh, I woke up 
the morning of November 9th, 2016, uh, which was the, the morning after Donald Trump had been elected. And I was completely flattened. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I cried every day for six weeks. I was so afraid for what was coming to my country. And it turns out I was being optimistic. <laughs> um, I was more afraid for my country November 9th of 2016 than I was the day after 9-11. And I'm not saying 9-11 wasn't the worst thing I ever saw. It was. But I knew on September 12th, my country was going to come together. And I knew on November 9th, 2016, my country was about to come apart. And it did. Um, because all the things that Trump was the symptom of had suddenly risen to the surface. Um, I knew on that day, I could never again wake up the morning after an election thinking, eh, I could have done more, but I didn't. So I threw myself into politics. And in this case, threw myself into trying to help Democrats flip the House in 2018 by teaching them messaging because they do it so badly and, and teaching Democrats how to sound less like Democrats so that they can make arguments that independent voters can actually hear. And I, I now do a, a lot of messaging for a lot of uh, sitting members of the House and Senate uh, for free, obviously. Um, but it's because I don't want my country to be its worst self. In the same way, I don't want my business to be its worst self. Um, I want my business to make the kind of product that we can all be proud of and to value the people who actually make that possible so that they can sustain a living at it. Um, again, this is just my opinion. I, I have no proof of this. I want to be really, really clear. Sometimes I can give you numbers and facts and, and, and they'll be bulletproof. What I believe this strike is about from the company side, my personal opinion, I think they want to get to a place of maximum efficiency and I believe, and, and minimum cost. I believe that they believe that maximum efficiency is me as a showrunner opposite AI. That's what I think they're trying to get to. I think what they want to do is if I sell a show, they'll say, okay, you can have uh, two writers for 10 weeks in a mini room. You can break the season, generate eight episodes, basically lay them out, then adios to those two writers. And then you, the showrunner, Billy, you sit opposite AI. AI will generate shitty scripts. You'll rewrite them and off we go. And so every script will be written by you, essentially. Um, and we don't have to pay anybody except you. Um, and you'll be working 24 hours a day um, for 52 weeks because you're short staffed. And you'll do it because you give a shit, right? Because we'll let you make the show you want to make. And you'll be able to add to your legacy as a writer. Um, and we get to keep our, our uh, costs down. And everybody wins. I think that's what they want. I think that's where it's going. And I can tell you because I know that in the room, when AI was brought up, the quote that came back to us was, we are not going to discuss a technology that we think we're going to use. Mm. Okay. So that's not yeah. grassy knoll stuff. <laughs> this, is, this is where it's going. Now, let me tell you my own personal experience about um, what I've seen so far. And also remember that all the benefits that I and my fellow writers enjoy that make our lives possible, make our livelihoods possible, residuals, minimums, 
health plan, pension plan, jurisdiction over the internet. Every one of them was a result of a strike or the threat of a strike. And every single one of them, the members of the corporations said, that will break us. You make us pay residuals, there won't be a business anymore. You make us pay minimums, there won't be a business anymore. Okay. I remember in 2007, they said, what are you guys getting so upset about jurisdiction over the internet for? That's not even going to be a thing. Okay. It's the fastest growing sector inside, not just the business, but inside the Writers Guild. But again, thinking more broadly about where this fits in terms of a national and international struggle about corporations versus human beings. I'm old enough to remember when car companies said, what do you mean we have to put seatbelts in? <laughs> Fuck you. That'll break us. Mm -hmm. I remember when they said, airbags? Are you insane? Mm -hmm. We can't afford airbags in every car? No way. Remember those conversations? I do. Yeah. So in that way, if you think about those times when it was individual safety versus what they perceived as corporate bottom line, every time they tried to resist, every time they were wrong, every time individuals wound up winning, okay? If you think of it in those terms, this strike is actually the front line in a much larger battle hmm. and human beings can't afford to lose it. Right. It goes back to that, what we, what I was talking about before about the, you know, the assembly line nature of, because people can't get their head around that, right? That, That's right. That, that making content, which I, I fucking hate that term, but what is the only way to encapsulate everything can be assembly lined. That's right. And, and, and it cannot. And, and that's what I'm saying is I think the more that we make, and it's like I'm, I've am i been a beneficiary of the more we make, and as a lot of people have, just because there's more opportunity to make more things. But I think that, like you said, if you keep pushing down and we get to this, you know, one writer with, you know, 10 million unpaid interns, which is what AIs are, mm -hmm. that you could get to a more assembly lined kind of like bottom line, maximum efficiency, quote unquote, and make more stuff. Because that yes. feels like what's happening is like there's just we're pushing to make as, as much as we can. However, now everybody is pivoting on streaming back to theatrical. It's a, it's a very strange kind of dual conversation that's happening, right? So it's like theatrical seems to be making a resurgence with these big summer movies that mm -hmm. have worked and are coming out yet. And, and everybody sort of publicly is saying, oh, we're going to, except for Netflix, uh, we're going to back off on streaming. We're going to really start with theatrical. There's no downside to releasing this. I'm talking about features now, mm -hmm. theatrical and then go streaming. Yet there is this push to make sure they keep AI as a technology that can be used, which feels to me the same is what you were saying about the internets, which is what everybody was calling it when you were striking. Like, what's this internets that you were so worried about? Right. And by the way, the, the first day of Hulu in operation was the day the strike ended in 2008. Right. They literally opened for business right. the day the strike ended. Um, and before that, you had DVDs and you had to claw it back. And so what you're saying right. is you want, you're trying to be ahead of it because it's much harder to claw stuff back as you learned from the DVD residuals or the home video residuals. Yeah, but ask, ask the studio heads what happened to those DVD uh, those DVD sales. Right. DVD was a, a pure profit stream. And ask Peter Chernin, who was there, ask them what they did with the profits they made from DVDs. He'll tell you. We gave it to the actors. We gave Jim Carrey $21 million to make a movie. That's what we did with it. Okay. And it's not like the writers were making a fortune off of DVDs. We had a, you know, a nice residual 
um, which helped people stay in their homes. But it's not like all the money was going to us. I mean, look, when, when I think about what we were about to strike over in 2017, it was all about span protection. Okay. And by that, I mean, in television, you know, it used to be if you were working on a network show, you were going to do 22 episodes, right? So you were going to be employed as a staff on a staff for 44 weeks. Okay. Well, that's your year, right? And you get a little bit of time and you can, you know, have a vacation and go fishing or whatever the hell you need write to do <laughs> or write a feature. Okay. But you're employed yeah. for 44 weeks. I mean, I'm, I'm making that number up, but to make 22 mm -hmm. episodes, no, that's sure. basically the game. And everything you wrote, you got paid for above your weekly fee, right? As a, as a part of a staff. And you then went and produced the episode that you wrote. So it's an, a different kind of assembly line. It's an assembly line in which the writers learn how to become showrunners mm -hmm. and then can train younger writers. Mm. So you had this, there was a factory element to it, but in a very healthy way, right. you trained people. That has stopped. Okay. And I'm going to talk about- Right. I'm sorry. Now what's on the table is this sort of DGA program for writers. Which, correct. Okay. Okay. So in 2017, what we said was, okay, it used to be you were employed for 44 weeks to generate 22 episodes and everyone in the staff could lead a nice middle-class life, right? The, the giant homes in Bel Air weren't uh, consulting producers on TV shows, right? But those were people who could live a nice life and put their kids through school. Great, everybody. And if they had enough talent and worked hard enough, they'd run their own show someday. And then they would bring in a staff to do what they had done. Well, by the time 2017 rolled around, we were in a different economic model because of streaming. All of a sudden, that same staff of writers was now generating eight episodes. And it wasn't over the course of 44 weeks. It was over the course of two years, right? So all of a sudden the span, if you amortize what they're actually making per week, they're all at minimum. No one could survive. So we had to fix that. So 2017, that's what our negotiation was about. And by the way, they said every day of that negotiation, no way, no way, we're not doing it, fuck off. It's never happening, okay? Those negotiations broke down twice. The second time they broke down, this was pretty classic. The second time they broke down, the reason they broke down is because the companies canceled the catering to our caucus room, okay? Um, and said they weren't gonna talk to us anymore. And then press leaked that we had walked out of negotiations, okay? So I can just say right now, anything you hear from the AMPTP for the duration of this uh, assault, just, Pretend you didn't hear it because it's not going to be the truth. They just lie. They do. It's, it's, it's in their nature. But anyway, as that came about, we wound up with a drop dead date that was midnight on a particular day. I forget which day it was, but it was the end of the contract. And at four o'clock that day, I, I remember very clearly um, calling my family and saying, we're going on strike. Um, your dad is going to lead co-lead the guild out on strike. This is going to be part of my legacy. And I, this is so fucked. I'm really upset. Um, what we did on that day was my co-chair and I, Chris Kaiser, uh, for whom I could not have more respect or admiration or gratitude. We said to um, the AMPTP, let's leave our negotiators out. Let's just sit down with a couple studio heads. And we sat down with a couple studio heads. And 
there were no negotiators in the room. And they said, here's what we need. We said, here's what we need. Done. Done. Wow. Solved. And Seems got what we needed. Right. Like made a much better deal than the DGA uh, had made. And then it had to get papered. Mm-hmm. And so we were like, contracts are flying back and forth between rooms. And by the way, if you want to picture where this is, the Sherman Oaks Galleria, you know that building? <laughs> yeah. Why do they keep talking about this please? Okay. Yes. Because the AMPTP is in the Sherman Oaks oh, Galleria. Oh, okay. And you park and you walk past the Japanese restaurant and you walk past, you know, the burrito place. <laughs> Get Chipotle. <laughs> and you go into Suite E. Wow. And it's this massive sort of industrial looking space. And the writer's caucus room is on the left and the uh, AMPTP's caucus room is on the right. And you spend 98% of your time in the caucus room. Right. And um, and then every once in a while, they'd say, okay, we're ready to talk. And you'd come in and here's our proposal. Right. And then you'd go back to the caucus room and work or whatever, and then talk about what your counter is going to be. Right. Anyway, so this went on. Um, but that night we got it done at 11 o'clock before a midnight deadline. But that's what's, that's how, that's how the 2007, 2008 strike seemed to have ended, right? Where there was no talk, there was no talk, there was no talk. There was this dirty 30, the WD-40, the- I, the, the, the WD-40 was in my living room. No, I know. Yeah. So, and all these, all this stuff. And then, and then, and then once you got Chernin and Iger in the room, it seemed like it went fast. So my question is, do you feel, are you worried that there's going to be this big force majeure event again? Because that's what happened in 2007. It didn't seem like anything was happening. No negotiation. No one was really talking. Talking. Then all of a sudden there was this big force majeure event. All these deals went away. Millions of dollars scrubbed off the table. <clears throat> and then Iger and Chernin came in and seemed to get it done very quickly. And you're saying in 2017, it seems like that's the same thing. What do you make of that? Um, I know that it's very uh, popular belief out there that studios, for some reason, want a strike so that they can get rid of a bunch of bad deals. Um, if you really break that down, that doesn't actually make sense because a strike is a complete loss of control over product. And if there's one thing corporations don't want to do, it's lose control. Mm-hmm. Um And what do they really get back? What they get back is they get to get out of what's left of a deal that's not great. Um, I don't really see- I've heard that. Yeah, I've I've heard that. Yeah, it's it's a very popular, um, I think, misconception. Um, I don't think it makes business sense. I'll tell you what worries me, aside from everything, okay, (laughs) which is my nature. Um, But what worries me is, uh, you know, I've never met- Bob Iger, um, I'm a fan. Um, I, I, I believe in Bob Iger. And if Bob Iger ever wants to run for president, I'll help him. <laughs> um, I don't know how much impact Bob Iger has on this. Because um, up to 2017, when I was in the room, Netflix, Apple, Amazon, they weren't there. Yeah, they didn't. They, barely they, they did not have yet. a seat at that right. table. And deals were being made for them by other media conglomerates. Well, now they are in that room. And again, I'm not. So I don't know if they have an outsized voice in that room. But I don't know. Can Bob Iger tell Apple, Amazon, and Netflix what to do? And I what, didn't mean what Bob to specifically. Take? I just meant, do you think? Maybe he can. I, it's well, no, possible. But I'm saying, do you think it's getting Ted to the table and just say, sitting down, you guys with Ted, not you, but them with Ted and solving? I don't know. It just feels like. Sure. 
That ultimately is what's going to happen. It doesn't feel like nothing. Yeah, it feels like there's no negotiation happening right now. Well, right now there there isn't. I mean, look, um, the soonest this starts to even get discussed seems like a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Soonest. Um, that's just the nature of a strike. Just for everything to calm down. And Everybody needs to calm down. Um, look, here's we already know CBS delayed their upfront. We know there's going to be no Saturday Night Live. We know there's going to be no late night. Um, they, the, the broadcast networks don't have shows to put on in the fall. Um, there is no next season. Right. Now, maybe that's a good thing for Netflix. Maybe Netflix is thinking, hey, if there's no new product on ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox, more people will come over to us and watch old episodes of fill in the blank. Right. Or they'll watch more episodes of what we're making. Right. It may take a while for this to affect uh, the bottom line of uh, of a streamer. I don't know. I don't know their business model. How how because I don't know because I'm not a writer. How are you paid on a TV show at Netflix or a film at Netflix as a writer? In in well, success see, and in normal. Okay, like, so that's what's tricky. On the screen side, we said to them. When I say we, I mean the negotiators. I wasn't in the room, but the the guild's position is okay. You guys are going back to a more theatrical model. Okay, great. Can you tell the writer before you make a deal with them whether or not this is intended for theatrical or streaming? Because it's a different pay model. So if it's going to be theatrical, great. Pay us at this level. If it's going to be uh, streaming, also great. Pay us at this level. And I'm talking about just minimums because Guild doesn't negotiate over scale, right? The difference between those two I don't have the numbers exactly, but it's around $8,000, okay, for the writer. You're telling me Netflix can't say, yeah, we're going to give you the extra 8000 so that we have the flexibility to make it a theatrical release. No, we're not going to pay the extra 8000 so that um, if we want to keep it on streaming, we haven't robbed ourselves of $8,000. They won't discuss it. Literally, what came back in that room was, we will not discuss this. Right. Okay. And you can't even discern who is really leading that charge. No, because it all comes a, through Carol right. Lombardini, whom I know and who I've negotiated with and against. Um, uh, but let me just tell you how this ultimately shakes out. Okay. Okay. So um, I sold a show recently to Paramount Plus um, and I'm the showrunner. The deal that I was offered, which was the deal I had to take, well, I, of course I could have said no, but the right. deal I had to take if I wanted to be in business on that show at that streamer. Can I stop you one second, just uh, for color? Did you take it everywhere yes. or is it a piece of IP they have? <clears throat> no, it was a, a book okay. written by Preet Bharara, Tribeca, Robert De Niro's company with Jane Rosenthal, uh, optioned the book okay. and brought me in to adapt one chapter of the book. And was it already at Paramount at that time? No. Okay. Okay. So this is this is like take it or leave it at this point for you. You can either well, leave the deal or take a deal. Let me give you the backstory on it. Okay. So so think about what that means. Okay. Tribeca doesn't pay me. So what that means is I'm going to take that chapter of that book. I'm going to go to New York. This happened to be a, a show about uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York, which is what Preparara was um, before he was fired by Trump. Um, I'm now going to go do the research that I do, like I would 
do for Captain Phillips, like I would do for Richard Jewell, like I would do for the Comey rule or Shattered Glass or Breach or any other true story that I've worked on, January 6th for sure. I'm going to spend months interviewing people, reading books, learning what the hell I'm talking about, walking around the halls of Southern District of New York office, talking to ex-cops, talking to ex-FBI, talking to informants who actually functioned within this world. Months on spec. Put a pitch together, okay? Then pitch it back to Tribeca, at which point they could have said, no, we don't like this. Happily, that's not what they said. Then go pitch the town. We got five offers. Um, we went where we thought the offer was best. That offer was they would guarantee I would get paid to write a script, a pilot, okay? They would guarantee someone would get paid to write a second episode. And they would guarantee someone would get paid to write a, a series format. Okay. So now I have to figure out eight episodes. So I said, okay, I need a room. I need a staff of writers to help me break eight episodes of this idea. They said, uh, you can have two. I said, I need four. They said two for 10 weeks. That's it. You and one other person or you and two other people? Me and two other people. I don't know why that matters to me. Okay. <laughs> so, so the room is... Me and two other people, right? And, you know, plus my producer from Tribeca, if he or she wants to join, uh, a writer's assistant, which is nice, uh, to take notes. And in this case, we had a spectacular one who actually made contributions. But essentially, we broke eight episodes, okay? Then I asked my two writers, why don't you two go write episode two together, okay? So now what they're guaranteed pre-strike, obviously, because it all goes away during the strike. What they were guaranteed was 10 weeks for being in the room at minimum. And now they get on top of that because I said they could do it. They get to write that second episode together. So they're not getting half of a script fee together. And that's all they get. Mm -hmm. That's it. Forgetting the strike. Had the strike not happened, at the end of those 10 weeks, if, if Paramount Plus says, yes, we're going to green light this show, I'm under no obligation to hire back those two writers. And even if I do hire back those two writers to work on the show, any episodes that they write beyond that point, they are not guaranteed to stay on through production. So they can't go produce their own episodes. They can't learn on the set. They can't protect their work on the set. It's not a viable living. They get dumped back into the workforce and have to compete for jobs again. And Every writer they know is in the same boat. And so everyone is, is willing to take minimum because those are the jobs that are available. On this particular show, maybe they loved the idea. Maybe they wanted to work with me. That would be lovely. But they took a job that they can barely afford to take mm -hmm. because there was not a better offer out there. And um, that is not viable. That's called a mini room. Okay. And what I can tell you is it's not a mini project and I'm not a mini writer. Don't put me in a fucking mini room. What the, I, I, I hear a lot about the mini rooms and the, and the, and the, the, the kind of arguments against them are that the, it, it screws the writer over. Wildly. Like, like, like no, no, I don't mean the, I don't mean the writer. I understand the mini rooms. I, I understand it used to be 10 for 22 and now it's, just, you know, six or below for eight. But what the, so in, again, 
and I know you're going to tell me to ignore it because it was, I read it, but the reading of it is, well, you know, somebody who wants to just write all the episodes himself, it's putting them in a bad position because they have to hire five more people. Mm-hmm. That, 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 but it seems like the WGA is fighting for that. So that doesn't seem like a valuable argument. What, what is the, what is the argument around many rooms and other than it used to be 10, now it's six or below. Okay. My answer to that is, let's say that you are an auteur. Okay. And you sell a show to HBO and you want to write all eight episodes. Okay. Good for you. It is impossible for me to believe that you could not benefit from a room full of writers to bounce your ideas off of as you're breaking eight episodes, six episodes, 10 episodes. There is no world in which that is a negative. If you don't want um, them writing the scripts, okay, you're an auteur, you want to go do that? Okay, great. But I've broken a couple shows now. I've done this twice now. Nobody is good enough to do this on their own. Nobody. You need, it's a collaborative medium. You need collaboration. And the real problem with the shrinking of the workforce, the limiting what used to be six writers in a room to two writers in a room or one writer plus AI. The real problem with that is forgetting for the moment that it's going to make a lot of writers um, just incapable of earning a living. That's less writers contributing less money to the pension and health plans. And eventually the pension and health plans will vanish. And then what do you do? Then how how does anybody sustain a living in this business where you're getting paid less for longer span and on top of it, you have no pension, which means you have to do it forever in a business that's ageist. So that's not going to happen. And you have no health plan. So now everything that you're spending is on booster shots for your kids. Um, it's not tenable. It's not going to work. And again, if you make writing um, an untenable living for people, yeah, your profits may go up this year. Your costs may go down. Your bottom line may improve. Where are you going to be in five years? Where are you going to be? Who's going to write your fucking shows? And while we're at it, if you do push everything onto showrunners, right? And by the way, remember, showrunners are paid less than minimum in post because networks and studios don't consider editing to be writing, which is just patently insane. Of course, editing is writing. You never stop writing when you're in prep, production, or post. Uh, To me, sound mixing is writing. The score is writing. Of course it is. Everybody knows that. But you are now getting to the place where even showrunners won't be able to sustain a living anymore because they're getting stretched to minimums. And what this ultimately comes down to is the beginnings of this business were individuals owning studios, right? Mayer, the Warner Brothers, Adolf Zucker, Fox, Goldman, yeah. Goldwyn, Carl Lemley. Right. Okay. 
they knew the product had to be good. They knew it. And they hired people like Irving Thalberg, right? They hired Zanuck. They hired Bob Evans, right? They hired um, Sherry Lansing. I'm not saying those guys, but the-, the Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they hired gunslingers who knew the product had to be good and cared. And all of a sudden, you have this incredible heyday of movies and television where the product was excellent and the system worked and everybody was winning. The people who are calling the shots in the movie and TV business now are not movie and TV people. They're corporate people. And they don't actually give a shit if the product is good and if the business is sustainable, right? I mean, ultimately, they'll just go buy another business if they need to. They'll diversify. Um, but they're going to kill this business on the way in the same way that I believed that the election of Trump um, was going to be the beginning of a, a, an existential threat to democracy. And it was and continues to be. This is an existential threat, not just to writers, but to the business. One thing that I always took great pains to say when, when I was um, in that room, every single thing that we are asking for is not just good for writers. It's good for the business. Writers cannot win if the business fails. We die if the business fails. So we would never propose an economic model that would harm the business. Yeah, I guess that's the... I guess that's the the idea, right? That, like you said, the writers are just coming up with all these things willy nilly because it's better for them. Not re it, if we don't take into account that <laughs> you can't you can't kill the host. Mm -hmm. um, it has to be better for the business. And look, everything does start with writing. It has to be, of course, starting with the script. So, but we're talking about something. I know that because um, I've seen it on the picket signs that writers are talking about greed, corporate greed. This for me is not about corporate greed. It is a clear example of corporate greed, but this is about extinction. Hmm. This is a much more perilous threat. I can live with corporate greed. Corporate greed is fine. America was built on corporate greed, right? I mean, what is the economic engine of America? It's profit. corporate greed. Yeah, it's profit. It's profit. Okay. That's fine. I'm a capitalist to my core. But this is about extinction. This is about the end of a profession, which happens to be a profession that I hold very dear, not just because it's been good to me, but because I grew up watching great movies and great television written by people. Mm -hmm. And uh, you exterminate them? What are our kids going to grow up watching? Shit written by AI? Are you kidding me? Yeah, I don't... I I'm less, I'm less of a doomsayer than that. I don't know that. Spend some time in that room. You won't be. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure if I was it was in that room. But I, how I sort of in a more globally look at it is that I agree that, you know, ever since Gulf Western took, took over Paramount, that things have taken a more corporate turn for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we have a wistful idea of how much better stuff was than is now. Cause mm -hmm. I do think there's good shit being made now. There's amazing shit yeah. being made now. So I, and I do agree the emotion of feeling like this is an extinction event. I, this is going to work resolve. It always does. Well, we'll get them back to the table, but well, they will come back to the table. Mm -hmm. I mean, otherwise 
that would be insane. There would just be nothing made. That's that's crazy. So it's going to get resolved. I do believe, and the reason why the UNI doing this, I think, is important is because I want to talk normally about this stuff without the rancor of of um, for sure of uh, negotiators in the room, because I do think that there's at the core of it. I I do believe, and I don't know what level you're talking about. People don't give a shit, but I do believe the people that I deal with do do care about movies, do of care course. about television. Of course. The And so I don't know how high up would they stop caring, <laughs> but I do know that the people that I'm in business with mm -hmm. do give a shit and are passionate about it. But I would also say there's a fear for going through our business like I've never seen before. For sure. Um, and I don't know, and I do believe that it is caused by a bigger thing, a bigger overarching feeling in our world right now than just the movie business. And I do believe that fear is not healthy for our business because I do think that, especially in our business, and you say gunslingers, which is so smart, is that if you if you make decisions based on playing defense, it's very hard to be creative. Right. Right? So there's two mindsets. There's the creative mindset and the competitive mindset. And I think that some of the, some of the boards of big corporations mostly deal in competitive mindset, you know, banks and things of that nature deal in competitive mindset that you have to be competitive and beat the other person where I believe our business was formed on the creative mindset of creating new opportunities, creating new stories, creating new worlds, et cetera. So I believe we're going to get through this. And I believe that uh, once the emotion kind of calms down, if we could have just a calm, intelligent conversation about it, I there's no world where good shit being written by smart people is bad. And as long as you can get to a place where you feel it's fair and equitable and you can make a living and we can train new people to come up. I, I, I worry more that people don't want to be in our business. They'd rather go to tech. They'd rather go into AI. They'd rather go mm -hmm. sports anywhere but here. And that, that's my bigger concern is that we're sort of eating our own lunch because there's so much bad press coming out of what we're doing to each other mm -hmm. as opposed to sitting down. Like you said, once you sat down and talked to those people, like, people, you figured it out. So that's my hope for this. I, 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 I don't, by the way, I don't they, believe, I, I'm sorry. I don't believe that they want to kill the business. I don't. I, I No, I don't think they yeah. want to kill the business either. I just think they are so busy looking at their next step that they're not looking 10 years down the road and thinking, oh, that thing that I do now to compress cost is going to wind up killing well, let's talk the, about that. The, I mean, the we, have a, we have a lot of weeks to go through that because I think that's important. Let's talk about the 10 years, what you see. And that, and that, we're going to wrap up here, but I want to invite anybody who wants to come on to talk about this stuff because I would love – that's the thing I think is so important is to enlighten the people that are going to be listening to this. What is the 10-year plan? What is that thing that you're worried about in 10 years? What are you seeing or your guild is seeing or the leadership of your guild is seeing in the tea leaves that maybe we're overlooking? I don't mean works. I'm not in the AMPTP, but mm -hmm. that 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 the we're as a business overlooking. What, what can we do to preserve this thing that we love and we're passionate about and make better and make the writers feel that they can <laughs> put their kids through school and and have healthcare, which just seems just crazy to even have to say, and be creative. That's what I really want to hope that people will come on and talk to us about. Yep. 
and I appreciate you. And I, and I, and I, as we do this, I want to get more into what the, what you see the future holding. Cause I think that's important because if it is something you think is a t- time bomb waiting to go off, we should talk about it. I think that's where the terror is. Well, good. That people don't know. But there is this overriding fear in the business. I feel it. I feel it from almost everybody, agents and executives and writers and directors. Everybody has this sort of underlying unease. And even in the conversations of like making decisions, getting getting things moved forward, there's just, uh, uh, I don't want to. Uh, there's always been, it's always been a fear-driven business. That's, that's just the nature of the game. Right. Because if you make shoes for a living, you can show someone, hey, this is what I make. Right. It's not right. a gamble necessarily every right. time uh, out. Look at the shoe. This right. is what I just made, <laughs> right. right? If your talent is um, is not tangible in that way, right. your talent is, hey, I really know how to get writers to do good work and I really know how to work with agents and I really know how to sell to a studio. That's not a shoe. Right. That's not something you can show people. Right. And so, of course, you're going to be terrified all day long. Yeah. Because it's easy to devalue you. And I even believe that I've even believed the executives feel that way. I feel the executives are are, are feeling, especially now with layoffs coming left and right and from all sides. I feel like executives are feeling that fear. Of course they are. Hmm. All right. We're going to pick it up here. We're going to bring you some interesting it. people in. Okay, good. Anybody who wants to come on, hit us up. And thank you, Billy. This is an important and I, and I hope that we can be a, a, a little bit of help in this situation. Thank you, Todd. It's a privilege. And thank you to our engineer.